Part three, chapters five and six of Doctor Doolittle's Post Office. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Doctor Doolittle's Post Office by Hugh Lofting. Part three, chapter five: The White Mouse's Story. Whose turn is it to give us a story now? Asked the doctor when the supper things were cleared away the following evening. I think the White Mouse ought to tell us one," said Jip. Mm, very well said the white mouse i will tell you one of the days of my youth the doctor knows this story but the rest of you have never heard it and smoothing back his white whiskers and curling his pink tail snugly about his small sleek body he blinked his eyes twice and began when i was born i was one of seven twins but all my brothers and sisters were ordinary mouse color and i alone out of the whole family was white my color worried my mother and father a great deal they said i was so conspicuous and would certainly as soon as i left the nest get caught by the first owl or cat that came along we were city folk my family were and proud of it we lived under the floor of a miller's shop across the street from our place was a butcher's shop and next door to us was a dyer's where they dyed cloth different colors before it went to the tailor's to be made into suits now when we children grew up big enough to go off for ourselves our parents gave us all sorts of careful instructions about escaping cats and ferrets and weasels and dogs. But over poor me they shook their heads. They really felt that there was not much hope of my leading a peaceful life with white fur that could be seen a mile off. Well, they were quite right. My color got me into trouble the first week that I set out to seek my fortune, but not in the way they thought it would. The son of the miller who owned the shop where we lived found me one morning in a bin of oats. Aha! he cried a white mouse the very thing i've been wanting and he caught me in a fishing net and put me in a cage to keep as a pet i was very sad at first but after a while i got sort of used to the life the boy he was only eight years old treated me kindly and fed me regularly each day i grew almost fond of the funny snub-nosed lad and became so tame that he would let me out of my cage sometimes and i would run up and down his sleeve but i never got a chance to escape after some months I began to grow weary of the silly life I was leading. And then, too, the wild mice were so mean to me. They used to come around at night and point at me through the wire of my cage, saying, Look at the tame white mouse! <laughs> A plaything for children! Good little mousie! Come and have him's facey washed! The stupid little idiots! Well, finally, I set to work and thought out a clever plan of escape. I gnawed a hole through the wooden floor of my cage and kept it covered with straw so the boy couldn't see it. And one night, when I heard him safely snoring, he always kept my cage at the head of his bed, I slipped out of the hole and got away. I had many adventures with cats. It was winter time and the snow lay thick upon the ground. I started off to explore the world, rejoicing in my liberty. Going around to the back of the house, I passed from the miller's yard into the dyer's yard next door. In the yard was a dying shed, and I noticed two owls sitting on the top of it in the moonlight. Entering the shed, I met a rat, very old and very thin. Said he to me, I am the oldest rat in the town, and I know a great deal. But tell me, why do you come here into the dying shed? I was looking for food, I said. The old rat laughed a cracked and quavering laugh with no joy in it at all. There's no food here, he said only dyes of different colors and he pointed to the big dye vats all in a row that towered in the half darkness above our heads 
"'Any food there was here I've eaten,' he went on sadly, "'and I dare not go out for more, because the owls are waiting on the roof. "'They'd see my dark body against the snow, and I'd stand no chance of escape. "'I am nearly starved.' "'And he swayed weakly on his old feet. "'But now you've come, it's different. "'Some good fairy must have sent you to me. "'I've been sitting here for days and nights on end, "'hoping a white mouse might come along.' With your white fur, you understand, the owls can't see you so well against the snow. That's what's called protective coloration. I know all about natural history. I'm very old, you see. That is why you manage to get in here without being caught. Go out now, for pity's sake, and bring me the first food of any kind that you can find. The owls by night and the cats by day have kept me shut in here since the snow came, without a bite to eat. You are only just in time to save my life." So off I went across the moonlit snow, and the blinking owls on the roof of the dying shed never spotted me. Against the whiteness I was nearly invisible. I felt quite proud. At last my white fur was coming in handy. I found a garbage can, and picking out some bacon rinds I carried them back to the starving rat. The old fellow was ever so grateful. He ate and ate. My whiskers how he ate. Finally he said, Ah! "'Now I feel better.' "'You know,' said I, "'I have only just escaped from captivity. "'I was kept as a pet by a boy. "'So far being white has only been a great inconvenience to me. "'The cats could see me so well, life wasn't worth living.' "'Well, now I'll tell you what we'll do,' said he. "'You come and live in this dying shed with me. "'It isn't a bad place, quite warm and snug under the floors.' and the foundations are simply riddled with holes and corridors and hiding places. And while the snow is here, you can go out and get the food for both of us, because you can't be seen so well against the snow. And when the winter is over and the earth is black again, I will do the food hunting outside, and you can do the staying at home. You see, this is a good place to live in in another way. There is nothing for rats and mice to destroy here, so people don't bother about you. Other places, like houses and food shops and mills, folks are always setting traps and sending ferrets after you. But no one minds rats living in a dying shed, see? Foolish young rats and mice go and live where there's lots of food. But not for me. I'm a wise one, I am. Well, we agreed upon this arrangement, and for a whole year I lived at the tires with the old wise rat. And we lived high, no mistake. Not a soul ever bothered us. In the winter days I did the foraging, and when summer came, my old partner, who knew where to get the choicest foods in town, kept our larder stocked with the daintiest delicacies. Ah, many's the jolly meal I've had under the floor of the dye shed with that old veteran, chuckling in whispers as we heard the dyers overhead, mixing the dyes in the great big vats and talking over the news of the town. But none of us are ever content for long, you know, foolish creatures that we are. And by the time the second summer was coming, I was longing to be a free mouse, to roam the world and all that sort of thing. And then, too, I wanted to get married. Maybe the spring was getting into my blood. So one night I said to the old rat, Rat, I said, I'm in love. All winter, every night I went out to gather fodder. I've been keeping company with a lady mouse. Well-bred she is, with elegant manners. I've a mind to settle down and have a family of my own. Now here comes the summer again, and I've got to stay shut up in this miserable shed on account of my beastly color. The old rat gazed at me thoughtfully a moment, and I knew that he was going to say something particularly wise. Young man, says he at last, 
"'If you've a mind to go, I reckon I can't stop you, "'foolish young madcap though I think you, "'and how I'll ever shift for myself after you've gone, "'goodness only knows. "'But seeing you have been so useful to me this past year and more, "'I'll help you.' "'So saying, he takes me upstairs to where the dye-vat stood. "'It was twilight, and the men were gone, "'but we could see the dim shapes of the big vats towering above our heads. "'Then he takes a string that lay upon the floor, "'and scaling up the middle vat, he lets the string down inside. "'What's that for?' I asked. "'That's for you to climb out by after you've taken a bath. "'For you to go abroad in summer with a coat like yours would mean certain death. "'So I'm going to dye you black.' "'Jumping cheese!' I cried. "'Dye me black!' "'Just that,' says he. "'It's quite simple. "'Scale up that middle vat now, onto the edge, "'and dive right in. "'Don't be afraid. "'There's a string there for you to climb out by.' "'Well, I was always adventurous by nature, "'and plucking up my courage, "'I scrambled up the vat onto the edge of it. "'It was awful dark, and I could just see the dye glimmering murky and dim far down inside. "'Go ahead,' said the old rat. "'Don't be afraid, and be sure you dip your head and all under.' "'Well, it took an awful lot of nerve to take that plunge, "'and if I hadn't been in love, I don't suppose I'd ever have done it. "'But I did. I dove right down into the dye.' I thought I'd never come up again, and even when I did, I nearly drowned before I found the string in the dark and scrambled, gasping for breath, out of the vat. Fine, says the old rat. Now run around the shed a few times so you won't take a chill, and then go to bed and cover up. In the morning when it's light, you'll find yourself very different. Well, tears come to my eyes when I think of it. The next day, when I woke up, "'expecting to find myself a smart, decent black. "'I found instead that I had dyed myself a bright and gaudy blue. "'That stupid old rat had made a mistake in the vats.' "'The white mouse paused a moment in his story, "'as though overcome with emotion. "'Presently he went on. "'Never have I been so furious with anyone in my life "'as I was with that old rat. "'Look! Look what you've done to me now!' I cried. It isn't even a navy blue. You've made me just hideous. I can't understand it, he murmured. The middle vat used to be the black one, I know. They must have changed them. The blue one was always the one on the left. You're a stupid old duffer, I said, and I left the dye shed in great anger and never went back to it again. Well, if I had been conspicuous before, now I was a hundred times more so. Against the black earth or the green grass or the white snow or brown floors, my loud sky-blue coat could be seen as plain as a pikestaff. The minute I got outside the shed, a cat jumped for me. I gave her the slip and got out into the street. There some wretched children spotted me, and, calling to their friends that they had seen a blue mouse, they hunted me along the gutter. At the corner of the street two dogs were fighting. They stopped their fight and joined the chase after me. And very soon I had the whole blessed town at my heels— it was awful. I didn't get any peace till after night had fallen, and by that time I was so exhausted with running I was ready to drop. About midnight I met the lady mouse with whom I was in love beneath a lamp post, and would you believe it? She wouldn't speak to me. Cut me dead, she did. It was for your sake I got myself into this beastly mess, I said, as she stalked by me with her nose in the air. You're an ungrateful woman, that's what you are. 
Oh, la, 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 said she, smirking. You wouldn't expect any self-respecting person to keep company with a blue mouse, would you? Later, when I was trying to find a place to sleep, all the mice I met, wherever there was any light at all, made fun of me and pointed at me and jeered. I was nearly in tears. Then I went down to the river, hoping I might wash the dye off and so get white again. That at least would be better than the way I was now. But I washed and I swam and I rinsed, all to no purpose. Water made no impression on me. So there I sat, shivering on the river bank in the depths of despair. And presently I saw the sky in the east growing pale, and I knew that morning was coming. Daylight. That, for me, meant more hunting and running and jeering, as soon as the sun could show my ridiculous color. And then I came to a very sad decision. Probably the saddest decision that a free mouse ever made. Rather than be hunted and jeered at any more, I decided that I would sooner be back in a cage, a pet mouse. Yes, there at least I was well treated and well fed by the snub-nosed miller lad. I would go back and be a captive mouse. Was I not spurned by my lady love and jeered at by my friends? Very well, then, I would turn my back upon the world and go into captivity. And then my lady love would be sorry, too late. So picking myself up wearily, I started off for the miller's shop. On the threshold I paused a moment. It was a terrible step I was about to take. I gazed miserably down the street, thinking upon the hardness of life and the sadness of love. And there, coming toward me with a bandage around his tail, was my own brother. As he took a seat beside me on the doorstep, I burst into tears and told him all that had happened to me since we left our parents' home. "'I am terribly sorry for your bad luck,' said he when I had ended. "'But I'm glad I caught you before you went back into captivity, because I think I can guide you to a way out of your troubles.' "'What way is there?' I said. "'For me, life is over.' "'Go and see the doctor,' said my brother. "'What doctor?' I asked. "'There is only one doctor,' he answered. "'You don't mean to say you've never heard of him?' "'And then he told me all about Dr. Doolittle. "'This was around the time when the doctor first began to be famous among the animals. "'But I, living alone with the old rat at the dyer's shed, had not heard the news. "'I've just come back from the doctor's office,' said my brother. "'I got my tail caught in a trap, and he bandaged it up for me. "'He's a marvelous man.' kind and honest, and he talks animals' language. Go to him, and I'm sure he'll know some way to clean blue dye off a mouse. He knows everything. So that is how I first came to John Doolittle's house in Puddleby. The doctor, when I told my troubles to him, took a very small pair of scissors and cut off all my fur, so I was as bald and as pink as a pig. Then he rubbed me with some special hair restorer for mice, a patent invention of his own. "'and very soon I grew a brand new coat of fur, as white as snow. "'And then, hearing what difficulty I had had keeping away from cats, "'the doctor gave me a home in his own house, in his own piano, in fact. "'And no mouse could wish for more than that. "'He even offered to send for the lady I was in love with, "'who would no doubt think differently about me now that I was white again. "'But I said, "'No, doctor, let her be. "'I'm through with women for good.'" Chapter 6 Jip's story. The next night Jip was called upon for a story, and after thinking a moment he said, All right, I'll tell you the story of the beggar's dog. 
and the animals all settled down to listen attentively because jip had often told them stories before and they liked his way of telling them some time ago jip began i knew a dog who was a beggar's dog we met by chance one day when a butcher's cart had an accident and got upset the butcher's boy who was driving the cart was a stupid boy whom all the dogs of that town heartily disliked so when his cart hit a lamp-post and overturned spilling mutton chops and joints all over the street we dogs were quickly on the scene and ran off with all his meat before he had time to pick himself up out of the gutter it was on this occasion as i said that i fell in with the beggar's dog i found him bolting down the street beside me with a choice steak flapping merrily around his ears myself i had pinched a string of sausages and the beastly things kept getting tangled up in my legs till he came to my rescue and showed me how to coil them up neatly so i could run with them without getting tripped after that the beggar's dog and i became great friends i found that his master had only one leg and was very very old he's most frightfully poor said my friend and he's too old to work you see even if he had two legs to get around on and now he has taken to pavement art you know what that is you draw pictures on the pavement in coloured chalks and you write under them all my own work and then you sit by the side of them with your cap in your hand waiting for people to give you pennies oh yes i said i know i've seen pavement artists before well said my friend my beggar doesn't get any pennies and i know the reason why his pictures aren't good enough not even for pavement art myself i don't pretend to know much about drawing but his pictures are just awful awful one kind old lady the other day stopped before our stand wanting to encourage him you know and pointing to one picture she said oh what a lovely tree the picture was meant to be a lighthouse in the middle of the ocean with a storm raging around it that's the kind of an artist my man is i don't know what to do about him well look here i said i have an idea since your man can't work for himself suppose you and i go into the bone hiring business what on earth is that he asked well i said people hire out bicycles and pianos for rent don't they so why can't you and i rent out bones for dogs to chew they won't be able to pay us in money of course so we'll get them to bring us things instead then the beggar can sell the things and get money that's a good notion said he let's start to-morrow so the following day we found an empty lot where people used to dump rubbish and dug an enormous hole which was to be our bone shop then we went around the back doors of all the richest people's houses early in the morning and picked out the best bones from the garbage cans we even snatched a few from other dogs who were tied to kennels and couldn't run after us rather a dirty trick but we were working in a good cause and were not particular then we took all these bones and put them in the hole we had dug by night we kept them covered up with earth because we didn't want them stolen and besides some dogs prefer their bones buried a few days before they chew them 
it gets them seasoned like. And then, by day, we stood over our wares, calling out to all the dogs that passed by. Bones for hire! Beef bones! Ham bones! Mutton bones! Chicken bones! All juicy! Step up, gentlemen, and take your choice! Bones for hire! Well, right from the start, we did a roaring trade. All the dogs for miles around heard of us and came to hire bones. And we would charge them according to the length of time they wanted to hire them. For instance, you could rent a good ham bone for one day for a candlestick or a hairbrush, for three days for a violin or an umbrella. And if you wanted your bone for a whole week, you had to bring us a suit of clothes in payment. Well, for a while our plan worked splendidly. The beggar sold the things that we got in payment from the dogs, and he had money to live on. But we never thought where the dogs might be getting all these things they brought us. The truth is, we didn't bother very much, I'm afraid. Anyway, at the end of our first week of brisk trade, we noticed a great many people going through the streets as though they were looking for something. And presently these people, seeing our shop in the empty lot, gathered around us, talking to one another. And while they were talking, a retriever came up to me with a gold watch and chain in his mouth, which he wanted to exchange for a ham bone. Well, you should have seen the excitement among the people then. The owner of the watch and chain was there, and he raised a terrible row. And then it came out that these dogs had been taking things from their master's homes to hire bones with. The people were dreadfully annoyed. They closed up our bone shop and put us out of business. But they never discovered that the money we had made had gone to the beggar. Of course, we hadn't made enough to keep him in comfort for long, and very soon he had to become a pavement artist again, and was as badly off as he had ever been. And the pictures he drew were worse, if anything, than before. Now, it happened one day, when I was wandering around in the country outside the town, that I met a most conceited spaniel. He passed me with his nose turned up in the air in such a cheeky manner that I said to him, I said, What makes you so stuck up? My master has been ordered to paint the portrait of a prince, he said, putting on no end of elegance. Who is your master? I said. Anybody would think you were going to paint the portrait yourself. My master is a very famous artist said he. What's his name? I asked. George Morland, said the Spaniel. George Morland? I cried. Is he in these parts now? Yes, said the Spaniel. We are staying at the Royal George. My master is painting some pictures of the country, and next week he is going back to London to commence on a portrait of the Prince. Now, it happened that I had met this George Morland, who was, and is still, perhaps the most famous painter of farm life pictures the world has ever known. I am proud to be able to say that I knew him. He was especially good at painting horses in stables, pigs in styes, roosters and dogs hanging round kitchen doors, and things like that. 
so without letting the spaniel see that i was following him i went after him to see where he was going he led me to a lonely old farm out on the hills and there concealing myself in some bushes i watched the great moorland painting one of his famous farm scenes presently he laid down his paintbrush and muttered to himself i need a dog by the watering trough there to fill out the picture i wonder if i could get that fool spaniel to lie still for five minutes here spot spot come here his spaniel spot came up to him and george leaving his painting for a moment placed the spaniel beside the watering trough and flattened him out and told him to keep still i could see that george's idea was to have him look as though he were asleep in the sun george simply loved to paint animals asleep in the sun well that blockhead of a spaniel never kept still one minute first he was snapping at the flies that bit his tail then he was scratching at his ear then barking at the cat never still and of course george couldn't paint him at all and at last he got so angry he threw the paintbrush at him then an idea came to me one of the best ideas i ever had i left the bushes and came trotting up to george wagging my tail and how i thrilled with pride as the great moorland recognized me for mind you he had met me only once before back in the autumn of eighteen o two why it's chip he cried good dog come here you're the very fellow i want then while he gathered up the things he had thrown at the spaniel he went on talking to me the way people do talk to dogs you know of course he didn't expect me to understand what he said but i did every word i want you to come over here by the trough jip said he all you've got to do is to keep still you can go to sleep if you like but don't move or fidget for ten minutes think you can do that and he led me over to the trough where i lay down and kept perfectly still while he painted me into the picture that picture now hangs in the national gallery it's called evening on the farm hundreds of people go to see it every year but none of them know that the smart-looking dog sleeping beneath the water trough is none other than myself except the doctor whom i took in to see it one day when we were up in london shopping well now as i told you i had an idea in all this i hoped that if i did something for george morland perhaps i could get him to do something for me but of course with him not knowing dog talk it was a bit difficult to make him understand however while he was packing up his painting things i disappeared for a while just as though i was going away then i came rushing back to him in a great state of excitement barking trying to show him something was wrong and that i wanted him to follow me what's the matter jip said he house on fire or something then i barked some more and ran a little way in the direction of the town looking back at him to show him i wanted him to come with me what ails the dog he murmured to himself can't be anybody drowning because there's no river near oh all right jip i'll come wait a second till i get these brushes cleaned then i led him into the town 
on the way there every once in a while he would say to himself i wonder what can be the matter something's wrong that's sure or the dog wouldn't carry on so i took him down the main street of the town till we came to the place where the beggar had his pictures and as soon as george saw the pictures he knew what was wrong heaven preserve us he cried what a dreadful exhibition no wonder the dog was excited well it happened that as we came up the one-legged beggar with his own dog beside him was at work on a new drawing he was sitting on the pavement making a picture on canvas with a piece of chalk of a cat drinking milk now my idea was that the great moorland who no matter what people say about him was always a most kind-hearted man should make some good pictures for the beggar to show instead of the dreadful messes that he made himself and my plan worked man alive said george pointing to the picture the beggar was doing a cat's spine doesn't curve that way here give me the chalk and let me do it then rubbing out the whole picture george morland redrew it in his way and it was so lifelike you could nearly hear the cat lapping up the milk my i wish i could draw that way said the beggar and so quick and easy you do it like it was nothing at all well it comes easy said george maybe there's not so much credit in it for that but tell me do you make much money at this game awful little said the beggar i've taken only two pence the whole day i suppose the truth is i don't draw good enough i watched morland's face as the beggar said this and the expression that came into it told me i had not brought the great man here in vain look here he said to the beggar would you like me to redraw all your pictures for you of course those done on the pavement you couldn't sell but we can rub them out and i've got some spare canvases in my satchel here maybe you could sell a few i can sell pictures in london any day in the week but i've never been a pavement artist before it will be rather a lark to see what happens then morland all busy and excited like a schoolboy took the beggar's chalk pictures from against the wall and rubbing them out did them over the way they should be done he got so occupied with this that he didn't notice a whole crowd of people was gathering around watching his work was so fine that the people were spellbound with the beauty of the cats and dogs and cows and horses that he drew and they began asking one another in whispers who the stranger could be who was doing the pavement artist's pictures for him the crowd grew bigger and bigger and presently someone among the people who had seen morland's pictures before recognized the work of the great artist and then whispers went through the crowd it's morland the great morland himself and somebody went off and told a picture dealer that is a man who buys and sells pictures who had a shop in the high street that george morland was drawing in the market-place for a lame beggar and the dealer came down and the mayor came down and all the rich folk and poor folk 
So, when the whole town was gathered round, the people began offering to buy these pictures, asking the beggar how much he wanted for them. The old duffer was going to sell them at sixpence apiece, but more than whispered to him, Twenty guineas! Don't sell a blessed one under twenty guineas! You'll get it! And sure enough, the dealer and a few of the richer townsfolk brought the whole lot at twenty guineas apiece. And when I went home that night, I felt I had done a good day's work, for my friend's master, the one-legged beggar, was now rich enough to live in comfort for the rest of his life. End of part three, chapter six.